Hey, welcome back, everybody. This upload is coming to you August 2nd, 2017. My name is Dallas Post, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast. We believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so our purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought on topics within personal finance, economics, and investing. Don't forget you can find us at postmoneyplan.com or search The Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. All right, so we're going to pick up where we left off on the last episode, continuing to talk about the money lending system, fractional reserve banking, and then even a little bit of the Federal Reserve. Just to reiterate what we were talking about before, fractional reserve banking, what we're referring to is keeping a fraction of the money in reserve and then the rest getting used elsewhere, like lent out. So a bank will have $100, which it has in deposits, and then it might only keep $10 in reserve and then lend out the other 90. And when you first hear this, you might think, that's crazy. Like, where's the rest of the money? Mm -hmm. But that's really what happens is they'll keep 10 and then the 90 gets lent out. It's theoretically held. They have an asset that, that someone owes them money, but they don't have it there in their vault. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about pros and cons of fractional reserve banking. Let, let's talk about the pros is that with policymakers, they like to have availability of credit. So if you, with fractional reserve banking, banks are able to make more loans to more people. And so that, that's great for businesses in general. It's great for people who want to buy homes, people who want to borrow funds for any reason. And so, but like with anything else, every pro has its cons. And so on the flip side, the problems with the fractional reserve banking system is that banks are essentially leveraging themselves when they make loans. They basically loan money that they don't have. And some people would say that it's probably a fraudulent system when they do that, similar to counterfeiting almost. But as you said before, Dallas, it's like if with fractional reserve banking, if a bank only has, say, 10% of their deposits in the vault, let's say that 50% of the borrowers all want their money back. They withdraw their deposits. Well, the bank is going to be insolvent because they can't meet the withdrawal demand. But see, that, that's just one of the issues with fractional reserve banking. The, the other issue is that it basically contributes to our cycles of boom and bust. Another thing that, that banks do is, for instance, say that banks loan 90% of their deposits. Well, that, the truth is they can actually lend more than that. In fact, it's, it's almost unlimited how much money banks can lend. They, they can actually lend promissory notes more than the 90% that they have on on deposit in their vaults. And this is what a lot of people don't understand. This is like one of the things that is not taught in business schools to finance major. This is something I found out later on. Well, what will happen is the first $100 that I deposit in the bank, the bank has to keep 10 of that in reserve. They'll then lend the 90 out to someone else who wants a loan for 90. Then the person who, who borrowed that money will then put that 90 in the next bank or in the same bank, whatever, anyway. Right. And then that bank will get to loan out 90% of that. So now we're talking $81. They get to lend out to the next borrower and so on and so on until you basically have fractional portions all the way out until that initial $100 deposit has now created $1,000 in the economy. That's how the fractional reserve banking expands and then eventually contracts the money supply, mm -hmm. like you were saying. And you have the potential for boom and bust. But just going back to the basics of fractional reserve banking, normally, in most 
times, it's okay. And that you can do that because not everybody needs their money all at the same time. And so in history, in the Middle Ages, when the goldsmiths kept the gold in their uh, vault, then not all the customers came and tried to get their gold at the same time. And so they could just give a little bit out as people needed it. And they traded in their IOUs back for the gold and it would be fine. And the lending would create value by using the idle money while depositors didn't need it. But then uh, if a certain event, like a big event happens, you know, if there's an earthquake or a a financial panic, then all of a sudden you have a a situation where everybody needs their money at once, once, which then creates a problem because then the bank doesn't have all the money there at once. If everyone comes at the same time and asks for their money, they don't actually have it. They only have maybe 10% in reserve. So they could pay out 10% of their customers, but not all 100% of the deposits. And that's when you have what's called a quote-unquote run on the bank. Mm -hmm. And they used to happen quite a bit before we had our current system. You know, you'd have individual banks. They'd take in deposits and they'd give out IOUs and people would use those. But then if there were rumors that people heard whispers that the bank had some bad loans or didn't have enough money, then it'd be like people in a building that's on fire. Everyone runs for the exit and they want to be the first one out and they don't want to be caught left in the building with while it's still on fire. You don't want to be the last one to ask for your deposit back at a bank because maybe only the first 10% get their money back and everyone else is left out where the money they thought they had isn't there. That's kind of an unfortunate con to the fractional reserve system where you have your money that you earned, you put it in a bank, you think it's safe, and potentially it's not in the sense that the bank is lending out your money and keeping only a percentage in deposit. And if everyone comes and tries to ask for it at the same time, it's not all there. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely one of the cons of the fractional reserve system. And what you alluded to before, Dallas, is you know you, you explained the money multiplier on like a macroeconomic basis. But I want to I want to delve into that further. Like, and this is what a lot of finance students don't understand is this is what I was taught. But like, let's say that a bank has a million dollars in cash on deposit, and with the reserve requirement, they just say that well, they can loan, they can keep a hundred thousand on deposit and loan out nine hundred thousand. Well, actually, a bank doesn't have a limit of nine hundred thousand. A bank can actually loan more than nine hundred thousand. Specifically, that bank they could actually loan. 1.8 million, and the reason why is because of promissory notes, because of the way our, our system is set up. For instance, like for instance, if if someone wants a loan from a bank, what happens is that they don't just give the borrower a bag of cash; they actually give that borrower a, a bank account with some money in it. So it's like it's it's an electronic entry, and so this is how banks get away with that, so they can actually lend beyond the cash or the gold in their vault. This is where it gets really, really dicey, and banks do that all the time. So that's where you have a situation where you can potentially have a run on a bank if everyone's trying to get their money out at the same time, and the bank is only keeping a fraction of the deposits in reserve, then the bank can be, by all intents and purposes, insolvent and, and then be bankrupt. Because when you deposit money in the bank, it then considers your deposit a liability. They have the cash that you gave them, but then they lend that out. And now they have a liability to you. And that's what they consider it as. And so there's situations where they don't have the cash to cover their liabilities, which are the deposits that belong to you. The fact that bank runs could happen because of fractional reserve banking in the past were 
definitely a reason which caused people to be scared of bank runs and could create the situation of a self-fulfilling prophecy because a bank is going to be okay if everyone thinks it's okay and leaves their money in the bank. Right. But then if everyone thinks the bank is not okay, then it's not going to be okay because if everything would plug along like normal, but half the customers run and try to take their money out of the bank, it makes the bank insolvent. Right. So there you have a situation of a self-fulfilling prophecy where the bank run itself can create the insolvency. Right. One of the things that I've discovered in my research is that the more a bank leverages itself, the more it engages in fractional reserve banking, the higher the possibility of that bank failing. Yeah, that calls to question like how risky is too risky and what do we as a society want to accept as an acceptable level of risk? Because as we've stated with the pros of fractional reserve banking, you enable the economy like businesses, entrepreneurs by banks lending money. It enables those entrepreneurs and businesses to get access to capital, to start businesses, to invest, to then create value. And if businesses are unable to get access to capital, then they're not able to undertake those value-creating endeavors, and then the economy is stuck and it, it, it can't move anywhere. So you create value by enabling lending, but when you stretch it too far and you keep so little in reserve, even the slightest bank run would then create an insolvency. You create fragility in the, in the economic system where if people get scared, then the whole thing falls apart. Banks got really leveraged up in 2006, 2007, and 2008, which is what caused the big cataclysmic collapse in 2008 because banks had liabilities and they were leveraged up really high and they made risky bets and eventually that came collapsing in on itself. What we learned from 2008 is that the risk is that if the banks fall apart, then potentially the whole entire economy could fall apart. And that's exactly right. That's not something we as a society really want to happen. <laughs> right. Again, it just calls to question, like, how risky, how far out do we want to stretch it in terms of the lending practices and, and how much we keep in reserve versus how much should we, we keep in deposits? It's not a clear-cut answer, though, too, either. No, it's not. And most, most depositors who keep money in a bank, whether it's a checking account or, or, a, or a savings account, they really don't know how risky their bank is. And that's what that's what's scary about the whole thing. Well, if it's any consolation, though. So something that was put in place, bank runs used to actually be quite a problem. And so what they put in place was the FDIC insurance. Banks are basically insured. Your account is insured. And currently it's up to, I believe it's $250,000 per checking account. What that means is that insurance is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is going to back any bank account in a bank where the bank goes insolvent or bankrupt. So if you have your money in a bank and it collapses for whatever reason, because of it's too extended on its loans, because of the fractional reserve system or whatever, they put in place so that there would be insurance so that you would be able to get your money back so that then it wouldn't create the self-fulfilling prophecy of everyone running to take their money out of the bank when it would otherwise be able to survive. So that was put in place in 1933, and that has helped to create some stability in the system that didn't exist previously. But as we've seen in 2008 and, and other recessions, that it didn't just magically make all the banking problems go away. 
Right. I mean, the FDIC protects depositors from losing their money, but it doesn't stop banks from failing and the economy from crashing. So I have a theory. It's basically that the extension of credit through loans is what creates the booms and busts in the economy. If there weren't any credit whatsoever, if there was no borrowing, I believe that the economy would just chug along very, very slowly, but it would not boom and it would not bust because you just wouldn't have the requirement to pay down debt and you wouldn't have that call on loans, basically. Yeah, and I, I, I tend to agree with your theory, Dallas. I, I believe that if it wasn't for fractional reserve banking, if people just made loans based on collateral or or just unsecured loans and, and banks didn't engage in that practice, there would be less credit available, but you wouldn't have your your crazy bubbles and bubble bursting like we had in the late 1920s and in 2007, 2008. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And it's really the issuance of loose credit that causes these bubbles, whether it's in real estate or the stock market or, or other bubbles. But that just brings us back to the question of how risky is too risky? Because if you just went completely 100% reserve requirements and, and no fractional reserve lending whatsoever and no, uh, no lending, sure, you wouldn't have the bust, but you also wouldn't have the booms businesses and entrepreneurs would have a very difficult time accessing capital and getting money and therefore wouldn't be able to invest and wouldn't be able to create value in the economy in the way that they can if they have access to credit. So that's where the question creates a gray area. There isn't necessarily a, an exact right answer. We learned from the Great Depression and then now the recession in 2008 that there is systemic risk to all of the economy and society if we get too risky in, our, in the bank's lending practices and enable them to go too far out in the spectrum of risk. So I just want to touch on the credit cycle and, and how that works. With You have the ebb and flow in the economy, the cycle of a bank's appetite for lending, and then that creates the credit cycle. After 2008, you, you had the crash and banks got really scared because a lot of them almost went bankrupt. So when, once the banks get burned, they start to get really conservative in their lending practices. So you start the credit cycle with the banks only making loans to people who they consider very safe. You know, They have a high credit score and they require high collateral or in the case of mortgages, they go back to requiring 20% down mm -hmm. and only lending to 750, 800 credit score people. You know, they don't want to even touch people with sub 600 kind of thing at the beginning because they're just really scared. So those loans are probably very safe to make. Mm -hmm. But then eventually they run out of people that are super safe to lend to. And then they, they want to continue to increase their profits and show gains every quarter and every year. And that's a natural kind of appetite in the economy, especially in public companies that are on the stock market. Investors always want to see that they're always gaining. So then the bank is tempted to extend its risk profile and they will start making the same loans down to people with a 700 credit score, 650. And then they'll start having, to, if they run out of appetite from borrowers, they'll have to start requiring only 15% down, uh, down payment and then 10% down payment and then move down to 550 credit scores until the end of uh, when they start to really get risky with their lending practices, making loans to people who really aren't going to be able to make those payments back. And that's when you really start to get out on the end of the credit cycle where 
you're lending to people or the banks are lending to people that aren't going to be able to make those loan payments back. And part of the problem back in 2008 was that banks were able to make the loans and then sell those loans to other people. In fact, it was uh, Fannie Mae that was buying up a lot of those, right? Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Which are are government-sponsored entities. So then the banks were able to unload those loans so that they didn't have to deal with the repercussions of what happened after they made the loans. So they just got their fee, their cut, by making the loan. They get it off to someone else who's got to hold the hot potato, and they don't end up caring how risky the loan is. That's one of the big reasons why we had the fiasco of 2008. You know, when you combine the fractional reserve banking, the bank's not actually holding on to loans and getting to sell them back to the government, it just created a horrible disaster. You're exactly right, Dallas. And going back even further than that, we go back to the Great Depression. And if you look at, you know, why was the Great Depression so bad economically? In my humble opinion, I, I, I'm just going to explain my theory of why the Great Depression in the early 1930s was as bad as it was. And I believe it was the perfect storm of loose lending practices and the low margin requirements of the stock market combined with the loose lending requirements of the discount window of the Fed. And so basically, like let, let's take the stock market, for example. Now, in today's stock market, investor can put 50% down and buy stock, which basically means that with $500, they can purchase $1,000 in stock or 5000 can purchase 10000 And that's what they call buying on margin. That's buying on margin. But back during the late 1920s, margin requirements were even looser than that. It, they only required 10% down. So basically with $1,000, you could buy $10,000 of stock. And that combined, banks started making really risky loans in the stock market. And also combine that with the discount window of the Fed, which basically, going back to the history of the Federal Reserve, it was created in 1913. And it was created so banks could get more liquidity available when they needed it. And so a bank could have the incentive to go to the Fed if they made a loan to the public they could actually take that loan and the Fed would discount it and give them cash back for the loan. So back then in the 20s, the Federal Reserve was kind of acting like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So banks really had no incentive to make safe loans. They were lending in the stock market and also they were discounting their loans with the Fed, which in my opinion caused the the perfect storm of the, uh, the stock market crash and the depression. What are your thoughts on that, Dallas? Well, just a point on the stock market margin, which is very similar to fractional reserve banking because it's a process of leveraging up, trying to buy more or use more money than you actually have in your account kind of thing. Let's say you're an investor and you have $100 in your account and there's a 50% margin requirement. So your stockbroker will actually let you buy $200 worth of stock. Well, then when you buy $200 worth of stock, but then the stock goes down 50%. You're you're, wiped out. Well, what happens is your broker has lent you $100. You only have $100 in that stock, and then you're borrowing $100 from the broker, and then you'll get the returns if there's a profit. But the thing is, when it it loses 50%, then the, the broker says, I want to protect my money that I just lent you. So then they will sell the stock for you against your will. So now that it's down 50%, it's down $100. Well, first you get a margin call before they sell it. Well, right. If you can't meet the call, then they sell it. Then they sell it. They get their $100 that they lent you back, and you have nothing left over. 
you were kind of forced to sell. And so what you're referring to back in the Great Depression, you have a series of events where margin requirements were very low. So that means you could buy a lot of stock relative to the cash that you had, as well as the banks also lending a lot relative to the cash that they had. Right. And so when you pile all those effects on together at the same time, you have the potential for inflating things very high and then deflating things when the margin calls come in and people are forced to sell. And we've seen this in a lot of market crashes is that they're precipitated basically by debt in some form or another. The stock market margin, like that is a form of debt when you are borrowing from your broker or in the bank's case, the fractional reserve lending, they are lending out money that doesn't belong to them and they have liabilities that they have to pay back that they aren't keeping in cash. If all of a sudden the chickens come home to roost, it's not all there at the same time. It's kind of like a game of musical chairs mm -hmm. where there's not enough chairs for everyone. So hopefully the music keeps going. So then you never need to sit down and find out if there's enough chairs or not. But at times that does happen. And then we find out that there aren't enough chairs. I mean, just to reiterate there, the volatility of credit cycles and, you know, and how big of an extreme you have between the dot-com bubble to the crash in 2008, those are violent extremes, but that's, those are dependent on the extent of your fractional reserve requirements in the banking system. The banking system is the key driver of credit in the economy and how volatile your credit cycles are going to be. And so the higher reserve requirements you have, the less extreme swings between credit cycles are going to be. And then the lower the reserve requirements, the more extreme swings are going to be. You'll get more boom, but you'll get more bust. Again, uh, this, it's not an easy answer in terms of like what's, what's right, but that is a question that we as a society need to be addressing after what happened in 2008. And it would seem that the answer is we need to be more conservative than it was in the mid-2000s. As we said before, the U.S. banking reserve requirement by the Federal Reserve is 10% generally. So that means banks are keeping 10% of the deposits in reserve and the rest can be lent out. And through the money multiplier, if there's 100 in deposits, then that can eventually be turned into about $1,000 basically. It makes for big booms and big busts. But if you have no credit, you have no bust, but no boom either. Exactly right in, in Dallas. And also, we can kind of look at, at history and, and during the times of, of the Soviet Union, which is a communist country, you know, they didn't, they didn't have booms and busts, but they, they were just in a pretty much depressed state altogether. I mean, they, there was no economic booms, but so there, but you hit on something really important, Dallas, that your, that your listeners can understand if they get it, that the fractional reserve lending system is absolutely crucial if you really want to understand and profit from cycles in the stock market because when a bubble just gets too big you really understand that it's that it's because of this loose credit that it's it's because of the money multiplier in part but it's also the fact that banks are just able to get away with really loose lending practices and, and even loaning more money than they have on deposit by issuing additional loans which is basically money that they don't really have it's kind of like the Warren Buffett analogy. It's like when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked kind of thing. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah th I think that's a good point is the reason why this is so valuable to know about is because it's a, one of the biggest factors influencing 
the booms and the busts in the economy and therefore the booms and the busts in the stock market. And if you have your money in stocks or bonds, that's going to have an impact is, you know, you have your money in a retirement account and you're wondering why things are going crazy and tomorrow things collapse. That's a function of credit cycles because of the fractional reserve banking system. So having some knowledge of that, but that's basically why we go through these cycles and you have times where it's easy to get a loan or to get a mortgage to buy a house. And then there's other times where it seems so difficult and nobody can get a loan. It's called a credit crunch. And you hit on something there, Dallas. It's, it just seems like to me that investors never really learn, do they? <laughs> I mean, like we, they look at history, the Great Depression, the massive stock market buildup in, in the late 1920s, the dot-com bubble in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then the stock and the, the, the collapse of the financial sector in 2008. And what's going on right now? We've got a massive bull market. And I, I'm sorry, but I just don't, the economy is not growing as fast as stock prices are increasing. Yeah. So just as a closing point there, it's valuable knowing about the fractional reserve system because it influences cycles in the economy, your ability to get a mortgage and your profits and losses in your retirement account, which are going to ebb and flow. And back to your point there, Murray, is just that if you're piling all your money in at one point in time, there's the risk that you're piling it in right at the top and you don't want to be caught doing that. <laughs> right. So that's going to be a function of the credit cycle. And if you witness that the loans that banks are making, if they're requiring no money down on mortgages mm -hmm. and they're willing to lend without proof of income to 500 credit score borrowers, that's a warning sign. That's a know. red flag. In 2007, you know, where you hear these no income, no job, no money down type loans, that was a huge warning sign that in retrospect, now we can look back and say like, oh, okay, like how is that going to work out? Pretty bad, obviously. Right. And so if we see that coming along again, look out. <laughs> it's like in the movie The Big Short. Exactly. Which was pretty true to form in terms of what ended up really happening. So if you haven't seen that movie, that's worth an educational watch. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, we'll, we'll definitely have to talk more about the Federal Reserve and the influence on the stock market in, in future episodes. So come back for another one of those. But we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on the iTunes podcast app and catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan podcast. <laughs>